I'm Spencer Levy, and this is The Weekly Take. The CBRE research team recently published a report on trends in the life sciences space. Simply put, the report concluded that the sector has never been stronger. Life sciences has hit all-time highs in funding, job growth, demand for lab space, and new construction. Much attributable to the pandemic, of course, but there's more to it as well. On this episode, we'll talk about the trends and why the future could be even brighter. It's such a newer asset class that was not even really talked about until the pandemic. And now you have every single property owner investor trying to get into this asset class. That's Ted Jacobs, a CBRE vice chairman who specializes in life sciences. Ted spent his entire 15-year career working in the sector and is based out of San Diego, a market that's one of the most important life sciences hubs in the world. All lab buildings can be office, but not all office buildings can be lab. And that's Tim Schoen, CEO of Biomed Realty, a REIT that's also based in San Diego. Biomed is a Blackstone portfolio company with holdings of more than $20 billion in assets, ranging from the company's hometown to other leading innovation markets in the U.S. and the United Kingdom. We'll examine Biomed's portfolio and platform and all that goes into creating specialized, state-of-the-art life science real estate. We'll discuss the intersection of life sciences and technology as we put the whole sector under the microscope to look at how and why, not to mention where, it has been surging. Coming up, we'll blind you with life sciences, biomed, and what's potentially the dawn of an industry's new age. That's right now on The Weekly Take. Welcome to The Weekly Take. And joining us today are two folks in San Diego, starting with Tim Schoen. Tim, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Spencer. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. And Ted Jacobs. Ted, thank you for joining the show. Thank you, Spencer. Ted, for the benefit of our listeners, I mean, life sciences, as I mentioned, along with maybe data centers, are the hottest subsectors within commercial real estate today. Just describe what is life sciences, real estate, and some of the different types. Sure, yeah. So a bit different than other facets of real estate where at Life Sciences, it's not just the brick and mortar. The actual building functions as part of the company where they need a different design, different airflows, different equipment in order to function their business. If that's taking a drug to market, drug discovery for a CMO, for academia studies, what have you. And Obviously, it's been a a big part of the last two years of everyone's life with the pandemic and the life sciences industry has been at the front of it and been able to get us a vaccine in a record time and uh, get us out of this pandemic, hopefully very soon. Tim, this was actually a question I was going to ask later, but since Ted opened the door to it, we all work hard. We all uh, are real estate professionals and, you know, I'm proud of what I do and I'm sure you guys are too. But boy, in the last two years, did it change your perspective of just how important it is what you do? And did you get anybody come up to you on the street and just say thanks? Yeah, I mean, listen, we've always had the benefit, Spencer, of living vicariously through our tenants and uh, Mm -hmm. following the innovation. It's not only their profession, it's their vocation. It's what they do. And they spent their life working on conditions or trying to solve a problem or create a device to improve people's livelihood. Um, We're just really proud to be able to provide the infrastructure and make that infrastructure available so that cutting-edge science can be done in it. We think we're one of the main pillars in any of these markets that helps it grow and succeed. And 
really, uh, for those of us like Ted, that we've been in the industry a long time, the speed of innovation and what can happen when everybody rows in the same direction is pretty impressive. Well, the speed is um, remarkable. Uh, the vaccine, I guess the first vaccine took about nine to nine months or so. I remember my grandmother telling me a story uh, about when she uh, would send my father swimming during the summers in the 40s and 50s, how terrified she was because of polio. And until there was that polio vaccine. So uh, Jonas Salk literally saved the world, literally. And I think that could, the same thing could be said for uh, many of your tenants in your buildings today. Ted, let's um, go into just a little bit more detail if we can, because uh, there's all different types of life sciences, manufacturing, R&D. I would also say that Every suburban office owner that I know wants to convert to life sciences. So tell us about the types and what do you tell those suburban office owners? There's so many different types of life sciences companies and um, types of sciences that need different infrastructure that go into the buildings, what have you. But, you know, not every office building can be converted to life sciences. I would say, to your point, Spencer, almost every office owner at the start of the pandemic reached out to an architect, to a broker, to a project manager, and tried to do a case study, feasibility study, what have you, if their building can be converted to it. But as Tim knows much better than myself, it's the location. Uh, You're not going to just convert a a lab building where there's no talent, number one. And then number two, you have to have the, the ceiling height, the appropriate power. The floor load is critical as well to support the equipment. But the most important facet for for real estate beyond location, location, location is how are you going to attract talent to support your business? If I can build on what Ted said, Spencer, uh, Ted's exactly right. Uh, All lab buildings can be office, but not all office buildings can be lab. Uh, I think that was the first point that Ted made. But I'll put a little different spin on it, which is sort of the, and I'm not going to be too cheesy here, but the anatomy of a life science building. If you think about it, it's got to have the bones that Ted mentioned. And then you think about, you know, the circulatory system that has to go into one of these with robust mechanical systems, you know, HVAC and, and um, um, you know, gases and, and waters and things like that, uh, deionized water. And then the third thing is the higher level of tenant improvements. So I think conversions do happen, but somebody really has to have the conviction that, one, they've got the right bones and then they're really ready to make the investment. So somebody really has to make a serious financial commitment to convert a building. Well, let's talk about a building, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Tim, but um, Biomed just bought the John Hancock office building in Boston. Tell us about the John Hancock deal and what you're planning to do with it. Right. Well, the John Hancock building uh, that you mentioned uh, is now the Seaport Science Center. It's located at 601 Congress. It's in the Seaport submarket of Boston. Great building. It's an example of a building that had great bones, uh, some amenity space in it that we really liked. It had sort of a winter garden, if you will, that's within the building. It was a a platinum lead design building. Um, It had the ability to, to have the clear heights and the weights and some really impressive floor plates. And we thought that we could take, or we know that we could take that building that's under renovation right now, put the mechanical systems in, which are going in, and uh, attract tenants in a location where there is a lot of need for additional lab space. Seaport is an established life science market, and then taking a building with a juxtaposition, as Ted mentioned, location, um, and being able to get that online as early as next year really appealed to a wide swath of tenants. The renovation is well underway. And as we deliver that building next year for tenant improvements, so we're starting to talk to tenants here 
as we start the new year here in 2022. Let's stay with Boston for just a moment. Um, when I think of Boston and life sciences, I think of Cambridge. The seaport's about four or five miles from there. Uh, after the yeah. big dig, it's a whole lot easier to get there. I remember it used to take me an hour to get from Logan to uh, to Harvard. Now you can get there in like 25 minutes. Um, yeah. But uh, tell me about that. Tell me about the expansion of the life sciences space in Boston beyond Cambridge. Cambridge, obviously, you know, Kendall Square is sort of state and Maine. Um, it's grown out from there, you know, into Seaport, uh, into places even further out like Watertown, uh, even into some, some parts of South Boston. But really that Boston-Cambridge ecosystem has continued to grow. Whatever's been adjacent to Cambridge has really benefited. Somerville, um, Seaport, without a doubt, uh, the, the Bay Area and the West Coast are very strong, but Boston is, is a very, very, very strong ecosystem. Tim, a number that I've thrown around quite a bit, or maybe Ted, you can answer this as well, of the total amount of life sciences assets in the United States is somewhere between 150 and 200 million square feet. Is that number about right? And how big is the biomed portfolio? Yeah. Well, Ted, I'll let you go first in the market. No, can talk about the sure. I mean, that number, that stack could be debated a little bit, but that's about right. And I mean, we're still in such early infancy stages of the industry. Um, just in San Diego, we're about a 20 million square foot market if you combine Carlsbad. And then we're having new development going on downtown, which is new to San Diego. And there's an excess of... 5 million square feet being developed just in San Diego. Biomed's the second biggest owner in San Diego. Uh, in some cases, the, the biggest owner in, in the different submarkets that they're at. It's such a newer asset class that was not even really talked about until the pandemic. And now you have every single property owner investor trying to get into this asset class. Yeah, we run about $22 billion worth of value of real estate. It's about 18 million feet, including active development. Uh, beyond that, we can build another seven or eight million square feet uh, in, in our pipeline. And it's really a national portfolio in all the core markets. I've mentioned before the U.S., and that's by definition San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, Boston. We still have a campus in suburban New York. Um, in Cambridge, UK, about 45 minutes outside of London. It's about 18 million feet, and we serve about 275 clients. Uh, folks that you would expect the names, the Takedas, the AstraZenecas, the Pfizers, the Abbeys, the Amgens of the world, as well as technology companies. Uh, we have a fair amount of technology companies in the portfolio, including one that you may have heard of recently, which is a competitor to Tesla, Lucid Motors, who is uh, developing cars now uh, in Arizona, uh, has started production. We've been with them since they were a $20 million company. And also research institutions, uh, places like the Salk, places like Sanford Burnham, uh, the Broad Institute, um, and the research institutions, you know, UC San Diego on the left coast and on the right coast, MIT and Harvard. So it's a real combination of tenants that we serve, you know, with different needs and different uses. My understanding is that manufacturing of pharmaceuticals is still largely offshore, but it's coming here now as a much bigger thing. Ted, do you see that in your tenant base? Yeah, you know, being in San Diego, um, most companies are doing manufacturing outside of California. Of course, there are a lot of companies doing manufacturing already in San Diego. It's a very, very big investment that the tenant has to make in addition to what the landlord is providing. We are seeing a lot of companies, due to supply chain issues, do a national search to 
build out a new manufacturing plant. A, a lot of those transactions happened last year. I would say it slowed down just a little bit at the start of 22, but there's definitely a need to have better supply chain and have it in the United States and control the workforce a bit more as well. It's hard to say there's any silver lining in COVID-19. It was such a tragedy, but maybe one of the silver linings longer term is that we will see some manufacturing coming back uh, to the United States. If anything fell down during the COVID crisis or one of the many things that fell down during the crisis was the supply chain. And so, Tim, talk to me a little bit about how that goes into biomeds, thinking about where it's going to locate its real estate. We like to be in the shadow of research institutions, but I think, you know, Spencer, we are still seeing the effects of the supply chain if you see the inflation in the economy. People have really started to question their supply chain, and it's a great thing, I think, for the United States as we bring manufacturing back from overseas and put it more regionally, as you put it. It's definitely a demand driver for the U.S., and folks are thinking about that. I know we've thought about it as we're building buildings, and we do have an international supply chain, but we did source more materials domestically. I know in the life science industry, uh, folks are thinking about that. And in terms of manufacturing, you have an approved drug, and it's fulsome manufacturing. That's probably a different calculus than doing some smaller manufacturing uh, probably some of Ted's tenants that are CMOs and things like that. They they want to be, you know, relatively close to these innovation hubs of Cambridge and San Diego and San Francisco. So I think that manufacturing probably needs to be in the call it 30 minutes plus or minus from some of the innovation hubs. The larger manufacturing for approved drugs, I think those companies probably have a wider swath of the United States to look at where they would want to put manufacturing based on the talent base and the labor pools and things like that. So even if manufacturing comes back, and I do believe it is going to come back for the reasons we just described, I think we all agree the life sciences space, particularly R&D, is small in the United States. Uh, And because of that and because of the great demand, the value has gone up tremendously. And I'm going to use back of the napkin math on what Tim just said. He's got a little bit less than 20 million square feet, a little over $20 billion of value. That's over a thousand bucks a foot. May not be enough to get yourself a decent three-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, but that is about as high as office buildings have ever traded anywhere. And so, Ted, what are you seeing now in terms of rents? Uh, I had heard that Cambridge rents were over 100 bucks a foot in some places, but what are you seeing? Yeah, it, rents have really skyrocketed since the pandemic. The industry was very strong before the pandemic, and then Rents have gone up, in some cases, 30% across the board. And, and, and it's really hard to do these negotiations where rents are climbing sometimes on a monthly basis. And that's uh, a trend that we're seeing throughout the country due to, obviously, supply and demand. And more so, all the major markets, if you need lab space to occupy now until 2023, it almost does not exist for any size range. So you're seeing a rush from all these different developers to build out space because uh, a company typically chooses a property to go to for the obvious reasons of location and the way it lays out. But the timing is one of the most critical aspects. And that's why you've seen this kind of gold rush of office to lab conversions to see if that's faster than doing a traditional ground up lab build out, which is a superior building, but uh, saving just six months in occupying and running your business versus waiting for that purpose built lab building could literally mean billions of dollars to a company or if they're able to achieve some milestones uh, for a a new financing or for getting their drug into the clinic, what have you. Tim, you mentioned many of the key 
hub markets for life sciences, San Diego, San Francisco, Seattle, New York, uh, London. But I am aware that there are a lot of new developments happening in some secondary markets uh, like Midtown in Atlanta, uh, like in uh, Dallas, Texas, even here in Baltimore, Maryland. And, and what do all those three have in common? They're all attached to a major research university. So, Tim, how important are these research universities to the future growth of the industry? And would you look outside of some of the major markets uh, to tap into that? Yeah. You know, we made a conscious decision to focus on the core markets and grow. We're about an $8 billion portfolio in 2016, to give you an idea of how we grew. We recycled a fair amount of capital to come out of some markets to focus on the growth that we saw coming in these core markets and really benefited from that to the $22 billion we are today. Um, But you're right. Having a research institution is really important. I was in the medical office business for a long time, and there you wanted to be in the shadow of a hospital. In this space, it helps to be in the shadow of a research institution, one or two of them, or be in a city like San Diego where you've got both the research institutions and the institutes. That obviously exists in Boston as well, but you do want to be in the shadow of a research institution in a place like in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins. Houston's been mentioned as well, you know, with MD Anderson and some of the other uh, Texas-based uh, universities. They are really important, and they're part of the ecosystem um, that exists. There's the venture capitalists, there's the uh, researchers, and then there's the entrepreneurs uh, that can help advance some of the research that's being done. And I would argue we're the fourth pillar in the infrastructure. And when those four things exist... That creates a strong ecosystem, and that's what you've got in these core markets. You can go to these other markets, but you want to make sure the rest of that ecosystem exists. So let's go to the capital question. What's happening today in the real estate capital markets is that many of our traditional real estate investors now have infrastructure funds. As a matter of fact, many of them will buy data centers and say, well, that's infrastructure. So, Tim, are you infrastructure? Yeah. If you think about what the real estate side can do is we can provide the real estate capital and investment so that the companies can focus on science and innovation. And if you think about our buildings being in in its base form infrastructure, we can help this industry grow and help the United States have a competitive advantage and help grow the economy without any help from the public sector. I know there's been a lot of talk about infrastructure, but I think if you widen that definition and you include innovation economy into that, we're at at our essence providing that infrastructure to help grow the U.S. economy. So let's stay on the capital question now, Ted. When you're looking at your clients or potential clients, um, how much are you speaking to them? How much are you speaking to venture capital or both? Yeah, definitely both. I mean, the industry is very fortunate to see a lot of these funds be able to raise uh, tremendous amounts of money about a year ago, the, the public markets at the start of 22 essentially almost cratered for life sciences. Uh, so if you're able to stay private, it, it's, it's pretty helpful if you're a life sciences company, unless you have really strong data to go public right now. Um, unfortunately, the, the, if you went public at the later part of last year or any time last year, most of those companies' valuations have been cut in half. And so we're, we're hopeful that there's going to be uh, more positive momentum going into 22. Valuations were kind of out of control at the end of 21. Biomed's partner, Blackstone, they have a fund as well, and, and they're heavily invested in, in the life sciences industry. And 
it, it's a lot different opposed to a decade ago where there were very few VC partners that you could go to. And now almost every VC arm has a life sciences segment within it. And they had to get up to speed and, and they had to invest in this industry during the pandemic because it was one of the only things that were very vibrant and that were not shut down. So, Tim, uh, Ted mentioned your partner, Blackstone, uh, which took yeah. you private a few years ago. Uh, but well, before that, you were a public company. Tell us a little bit about that relationship, if you don't mind, and what kind of flexibility it affords you. I like to describe it as we've got an international portfolio with a world-class sponsor uh, in Blackstone. Ted touched on it, but it really is a conviction industry for Blackstone. We're in a long-term fund. We are a REIT. We're a long-term holder. Blackstone used to have the tagline, John Gray used to have the tagline, uh, buy it, fix it, sell it. I would say in our case, it was buy it, fix it, build it. And it really has become a conviction industry for Blackstone. We, we are in an evergreen fund, so we're much like a public company. Uh, we're in this for the long haul. Then they went and backed and put investments in companies like Ted just mentioned through Blackstone Life Sciences. So they're investing in the companies in the industry. And then being part of the larger Blackstone ecosystem and companies and folks around the world have really allowed us, and I'm going to borrow a tech term here, has allowed us to really create a killer app because we're providing the real estate and working to grow the real estate in the core markets while our colleagues are working to invest in the industry and in the companies and then using the larger Blackstone platform to provide the best service that we can. And it really is a very powerful app and it really is buy it, fix it, build it. The last two words you used, build it, um, is are disfavored words in the publicly traded REIT business. Uh, but I would say that one of the things that you can do as a private enterprise is in fact build it when public companies not as easy in the REIT space. Would you agree with that, Tim? That's a dangerous question, Spencer. Uh, I've been a public guy for two decades and now on the private side for six or seven years. You know, and I always like to think that colleagues, uh, no matter what their ownership structure is, make the right real estate decision. And you want to make sure that you manage your development exposure, whether you're public or private. I will say on the margin, it does allow us to take a longer term view um, and make sure that we're making investments in the right places. And uh, we wanted to make a return for our investors and ultimate success. But it does allow us to take a long term view and not have the quarterly reporting uh, requirements. But I'd like to think public or private, you make the right real estate decisions. But it is nice being in the private arena being able to plan and build for the long term. One of the big issues that we're hearing now from tenants, investors all over the world, but led from European investors in particular, is ESG and the importance of that in buildings in which they're going to occupy people that they're going to do business with. How much is this coming up today, Tim? Yeah, listen, I think you're right. For a long time, the United States was behind or is behind some of the European efforts. But ESG has been an important part of the public climate. It is an important part of the Blackstone platform as well. And it's important to our investors. Uh, And it's really important for our team and the the Biomed team, from our operating folks to our leasing folks to our development teams, that we're good stewards of the resources that we use. And, you know, with our development pipeline, about 35% of our portfolio will now be LEED certified. Um, That's been a tremendous increase over the last two years. We're constantly putting in, and I'll stay on the energy side for a moment, uh, the environmental and energy side, putting in new systems that utilize less energy, like smart stack technology, for example, that we're using in Boston, that 
you know, help monitor the amount of air and the quality of the air that's coming in and out of the buildings to decide how many fans need to be on at any one time in energy usage. So we're trying to become much more efficient at the energy we use. We're trying to use renewable energy and district energy that can be produced cleaner and also being produced more efficiently. And on the social side, we've got a tremendously diverse workforce uh, geographically, gender-wise, and backgrounds. And uh, it's something that we've really, really focused on and trying to advance the workforce in the industry. Uh, one of our folks works with GMGI, which is a workforce training group for lab technicians in Boston, to help bring additional folks and diversity into the industry because we need talent to come in and making sure that our teams and our boards and our executive teams are as diverse as they can be. It's something we've really focused on. When I was in the public arena, uh, to give you an idea, I haven't been in a public company now for six years, but we wrapped our ESG report around our 10K. So it's coming. There's, there's a lot more to do. And as an industry, we're really finding ways to get these buildings to operate as efficiently as we can. Ted, one issue that uh, we talk about in the office space more than perhaps any other is the change of use. Not the adaptive reuse that we talked about before, but work from home. And one of the reasons why people like life sciences is it's pretty tough to do life sciences research from home. But you can do some life sciences work from home, maybe writing papers or the like. So, Ted, give us a sense of how occupiers have changed their outlook towards space needs because of the crisis. Yeah, it's definitely something that's talked about with every single one of my clients. The clinical side, that could all happen from home, and it seems like they're happy doing that from home. But it's so challenging when you're onboarding new people, and this is all so new. It feels like forever, but you know, going on two plus years. And so it, it, we're still in two early stages where people are comfortable making long-term, you know, lots of these leases require a 10-year type of lease commitment due to the capital investment that's going into them. So we're still seeing, for the most part, a pretty general 50-50 lab to office build-out. And then that would typically in the past get paired back in terms of more of a higher office to lab ratio if you're deeper in, in the clinic or if you're a major pharmaceutical company, it's it's more so 50-50 or more so on the lab side. We are seeing more companies who might have leased more office space, downsize that and look to do more hoteling or to do more collaboration meeting rooms. But it, it's too early to make a, a statement about general trends I think we're never going to go back to every person working five days a week in the office. But to that advantage, the lab is actually one of the safest places to be with the single pass air. And uh, we were already kind of prepared for this pandemic uh, in terms of the safety protocols that go on at these buildings. And a lot of the scientists, they want to be able to bump into each other and have these spur of the moment conversations about the science that they're working on that you really can't get during a Zoom call. Tim, Ted mentioned a ballpark ratio there of office to lab space. He said 50-50. Would you agree with that ratio? And if and to the extent you're seeing some pushback on the amount of office space, are you seeing people take other options such as flex space where they may share office space in your buildings? 
Yeah, 5050 is a good breakdown because you've got folks that are working in the lab and then they'll go out and work in their offices. So they're back and forth. Having the proximity to office to the lab is more important. It depends on the user. It could go 60-40 where it's 60% office, 40% lab or 60% lab, 40% office. But 5050 is a good proxy, not just because that sounds good. We will see, I think, a more of a hybrid schedule, but We've always said, and I think if you've been around Biomed over the decades, uh, you know, innovation happens in proximity, not in isolation. So having these folks together and bump into each other, and we see it in our culture too. We want our teams to be able to come back into the office and really pass on the knowledge from each of our teams to the other teams and work together. We've got 25% of our team that's new as we've grown over the last couple of years during this COVID environment. We really need to be back together. And you need that in the life science industry as well. You need your teams back together. As Ted mentioned, bumping into each other and collaborating. I think we will see a hybrid schedule and some more flexible schedules, but, you know, at least in our economy and in the life science, people will continue to get together and share knowledge and advance the research. You can't do it from your kitchen, right? When I'm speaking to a traditional office uh, developer owner, uh, we're recommending to them that 10 to 20% of their space be flex so that tenants in the building can work together uh, or at least in the same space at the same time. And I could certainly see that for the office component of your business, but I don't see any reason why it couldn't be for the lab component too, for the right kind of lab. So do you have any of that today? And do you see any of that in the future? Yeah, I mean, we build flexible lab environments. And really, when I mention that, we talk about everything being above the grid, where we can move labs around as needs change or tenants change in and out. So we've built that flexibility of flex labs, we used to call it, into the infrastructure of the building. So that's there already. But I think, you know, once you're running a program, you pretty much want your lab set for the specifications that you need. But it's making sure you have the flexibility in the zones really above the grid in a building. Um, and again, that goes to making sure you design and put the infrastructure in right the first time. Let me ask a technical question because you use the term above the grid a few times. For our listeners yeah. who don't know what the grid is, including me, tell us a little bit what the grid is that you're describing. Really above the ceiling tiles. It's the plumbing and the data systems and wiring that you have above your ceiling tiles uh, in your typical office building or above the ceiling if you're in your house. So it's really what happens up above there that allows us to have some flexibility. So you, you build in as much flexibility as you can uh, to be able to move the labs around or increase the lab potential over time. Well, in terms of that flexibility, uh, Ted, you mentioned the uniqueness of these buildings and the redundant systems you need for things like air conditioning or power. Uh, tell us how much more expensive, maybe not from the dollars and cents, but what types of redundant systems might you need in this type of building, what you wouldn't need in a traditional office building? There's going to be tremendous investment on the MEP side. With I'm uh, sorry, what does MEP stand for? Uh, mechanical, electrical, plumbing. And these companies are, are running critical equipment. I mean, millions and millions of dollars of equipment. So they're going to want that backed up by emergency generator and then some of these companies are going to require a specialized type of water, such as DI water or gas or vacuum to run these different experiments or to help facilitate the different types of equipment that they have. And then you actually could even have very clean type of areas, different classifications of ratings of you know, ISO 7, 8, what have you which could be very expensive, and that's the number of air changes per hour, which you would not see in a traditional office building. So we're going to have single-pass air, and that's where 
a lot of the infrastructure goes into and makes it very expensive. And what we were talking about earlier makes it more of a safe environment to breathe in because if there's a, an unfortunate spill in the lab that there's a number of changes that actually gets recycled outside of the building opposed to an office building where it's just recirculating the air. It really starts, again, with the structure and the bones of the building that you're building to a higher floor-to-floor height. Uh, so you're creating room where you can put the ducting and things like that because, as Ted mentioned, the air that needs to pass through the building, you need bigger ducting. So it starts there, but it's really increased investment in the mechanical, electrical, and the plumbing systems. The best example I can give you is, you know, you look at the air handling systems and you go up on the roofs of some of these buildings or maybe a utility yard by some of the low-rise buildings. They're just unbelievable air handlers. You could walk into these sort of large air conditioners or air handlers. They're huge because they're processing so much air. Ted mentioned some of the other things. You're putting in some fume hoods, possibly, where you're doing some experiments, some biosafety cabinets. Uh, You're putting in the benches, the benches we would traditionally see in an academic environment or high school or college environment. If you think about your biology labs, you're putting those benches in. So all those investments, uh, you know, add up to a building that costs more than your traditional suburban office building where you're basically focused on the core and shell and the lobbies and then you're fitting it out with drywalled offices and things like that. Here you've got advanced plumbing and advanced systems. Well, gentlemen, I think it's fair to say that uh, there's no sector that's more attractive today uh, to the real estate community than life sciences for all the reasons uh, related to COVID. Um, But five years from now, um, when the world is, please God, past COVID, um, what do you see as the life sciences industry then? How much bigger is it? Uh, Will it remain uh, as popular as it is today? Ted, to you first, then Tim, I'd like your crystal ball as well. Yeah, I touched on this earlier. I think we're just only in the early stages of the industry. Five years from now, I'm not sure if it, if it doubles in size, it's going to be a lot bigger. I hate to make those types of projections, but there's always going to be a need for life sciences. People are getting older. There's new diseases that are always being found. And it's this industry that is on the forefront of attacking disease and trying to solve cancer. So there's always going to be a need for this industry. Unfortunately, it took a pandemic to really put a spotlight on it. Tim, your point of view, five years from now, how do you see the industry evolving? We haven't cured the human condition yet, Spencer. I think it'll continue to expand. The types of novel approaches that are being taken to, you know, Ted mentioned oncology, almost 50% of all research dollars go to some type of research related to cancer. Um, So, you know, a lot of novel approaches using your immune system, for example, I think we'll continue to see unique ways of treating disease with more efficacy. And as a result of that new innovation, they're obviously talking about CRISPR-Cas9 technology now that didn't exist years and years ago. You're talking about liquid biopsy, which is a way to see markers in your blood. So there's a lot of new innovation that's going to continue to come out and new therapies, and that will create a way to grow. And I think you'll see engineering and biology and science coming together along with technology, data and science. And as those two converge, I think technology and science is probably the most powerful wave in industry today. And that's going to continue to come together and drive demand. Other than that, it's hard to be really specific, but we definitely have a lot of room to grow to improve the efficacy of the treatments that we have today. And ultimately, hopefully, keeps people out of hospitals and out of acute care settings and will reap benefits to 
you know, the price of our healthcare system over the long run. I, I really believe the innovation helps our healthcare spending dollar go longer and help people live better lives. All right. Well, on behalf of the Weekly Take, stay classy, San Diego. And thank you for joining us with Tim Schoen, the CEO of Biomed. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And then Ted Jacobs, Vice Chairman, CBRE. Ted, well done. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you very much. For a deeper look at life sciences and more on our show, please visit CBRE.com slash The Weekly Take. We'll post a link to the in-depth research I mentioned at the top of the show. CBRE's recently published report called U.S. Life Sciences Trends. The Century of Biology Lifts Off. We'll be back next week, shifting gears from bio to branding for a conversation with some creative thinkers who are working to reinvigorate commercial real estate. And we've got a lot more creative and interesting programs in the works as well. So stay tuned for all that. And in the meantime, as always, please share the show, subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us. I'm Spencer Levy. Be smart, be safe, be well, and stay classy.